This is Democracy. A podcast about the people of the United States. A podcast about citizenship. About engaging with politics and the world around you. A podcast about educating yourself on today's important issues. And how to have a voice in what happens next. Welcome to our new episode of This is Democracy. This week's episode is on President Jimmy Carter, uh, who was uh, one of the defining presidents of the most recent era of American history, the late 20th century, and a defining post-president as well, uh, involved in all kinds of peace activities, uh, anti-poverty activities, home-building activities around the world, probably one of the most recognized American figures uh, on many parts of the planet. And uh, President Carter is reaching the uh, end of his life, and we are fortunate today to be joined uh, by his biographer. Many people have written about uh, Jimmy Carter, but my favorite biographer of Jimmy Carter is our guest today, Jonathan Alter. I'm sure many of you have heard of him. Uh, He's an award-winning journalist, author, political analyst, television commentator, often on MSNBC and many other network uh, programs. He's the author of His Very Best, Jimmy Carter, A Life, published in 2020. I hope all of our listeners will go out and buy that book and read it uh, at this important moment. Uh, Jonathan has also written The Center Holds, Obama and His Enemies, The Promise, President Obama, Year One, and a wonderful book Jonathan wrote many years ago on Franklin Roosevelt, a book I've used actually with students on many occasions, The Defining Moment, FDR's 100 Days, and the Triumph of Hope. Jonathan, thanks for joining us today. My pleasure, and thanks for the plug, Jeremy. I appreciate it. Well, those of us who write books, we always need to have them plugged, right, Jonathan? Yeah, that's true. <laughs> Before we turn to our discussion with Jonathan Alter of uh, Jimmy Carter, we have, of course, as always, Mr. Zachary's scene-setting poem. What's the title of your poem, Zachary? For Mr. Carter of Plains. Let's hear it. Alas, like all great prophets, you lacked that for which you might have been forgiven if we could have, like you, seen the blackened cat who pointed out to us the looming cliff. Cassandra, you spotted the drop so soon, but for your want of timing, we'd have heard the horn you blew, your whistle like the loon on lakes you tried to save, majestic bird. I'd like to think I would have noticed this had I then been around to hear your song, but truth is stinging like a poet's kiss. It hurts so much because it is so strong. So take your rest and set aside the world and know in death that now your time's unfurled. What's your poem about, Zachary? My poem is about uh, the, 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 one of the central tragedies, I think, about Jimmy Carter's presidency, which is that so many of, of the speeches and, and, and policy proposals that defined his presidency uh, were ridiculed in his day, but seem so prescient uh, today. For example, his efforts to protect the environment. Right, right. Jonathan, do you agree? I totally agree. I thought that was a, a very good poem and also very fitting because after Jimmy Carter um, left the presidency, among the skills that he developed um, was that of a poet. And he, he had wanted to write poetry his whole life, but hadn't had the time. Uh, and I think of him as a, a driven engineer with a humanist struggling to get out. So he consulted with two um, well-known poets from Arkansas, and he set to work writing poetry and eventually 
published a book of his poems, um, and at least some of them are not bad. Uh, I used a few of his poems in my book, especially his poems about his father. Uh, and at one point in our interviews, he told me that he could only express his um, real feelings in poetry. Uh, and I think there was a lot of truth to that. But I think that your poem was very apt in its focus on the environment because that's one of his greatest legacies. Um, and uh, and I think you, uh, I think if he was in a place a couple of years ago where he could appreciate it, I would have encouraged you to send that poem to him. And I think you probably wouldn't have, would have gotten a nice letter back, but I'm afraid it's too late for that. Right. What was it like, Jonathan, getting to know Jimmy Carter? Um, well, um, you know, I was, I was always, um, surprised by his, um, uh, accessibility, I guess, to me. Um, I think he decided early on that he trusted me and, and so, um, allowed me to spend time with him. But, uh, I guess my, uh, my first <laughs> and biggest memory is from, um, the first day uh, that when I arrived in Atlanta, where the Carter Center is located, and I also spent a lot of time at his home in Plains, where he is now, but this was in Atlanta, and um, I was starting my research, and I was getting ready to interview him a couple of days later in Plains, and he had a uh, family dinner that he held every month in Atlanta in, in, in the, uh, Carter center. Um, and he would have family and, you know, two or three friends to this dinner. And I got a call from his son saying, you know, you're invited to this family dinner. Um, and so I showed up and I was one of only two people, not in the extended Carter family who were at this dinner. And, um, after we had, um, some uh, wine before dinner. Um, Carter said to me, uh, Jonathan, say a blessing. <laughs> and so I'm like, uh, I'm, you know, I have this kind of moment of panic where I'm going, you know, what, what do I say? Do I say Shema Yisrael? Like, do I say Broca? Like, uh, you know, blessing over the wine, a Hebrew prayer? Like, I know he's, you know, ecumenical, like, and, um, so finally I just, um, I just said, um, you know, thank you, Lord, for presenting us with this bountiful meal and for including me tonight. <laughs> and right. Car Carter laughed and, um, he's normally kind of famously or infamously known among staff for not, um, praising people or saying, um, thanking people enough. It's, it's a shortcoming that he knows he has. In this case, he, um, he indicated his approval. And after that, it was, um, you know, pretty clear sailing for me, uh, I'd say, for the rest of the time that I spent time with him. But it would be um, an exaggeration to say that we became friends because, um, while um, I did join them in building a house in Memphis 
for Habitat for Humanity um, for a day on a work site. And um, I went back to the Naval Academy, which he had attended for his the 75th anniversary of his graduation from the Naval Academy. Um, well, that was, or 70th, actually. You know, while I spent time with him outside of the office, except when I was interviewing him at home, when I had a couple of very lengthy interviews with him, when I interviewed him at his office in Atlanta, at the end of one hour, his secretary would come in and the interview was over. <laughs> you know, it was like there was no wasted time in his mind. You know, it was, he was there for a purpose to, um, give me um, what he thought I needed to write a good biography, even though he knew he wouldn't like everything in it. Um, and, he, you know, he didn't feel that um, he had to make me part of the family. So just to, you know, by contrast, um, my friend and longtime Newsweek colleague, John Meacham, um, who wrote a biography of George H.W. Bush, um, he delivered the eulogy at both Bush and his wife Barbara's funerals. Right, right. And needless to say, I'm not sitting by the phone waiting for the call. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to be asked to do that. Um, how do you how do you think um, the American public, um, and per in particular those who lived through his presidency, will remember the man and the president? Well, I think you have to distinguish between um, today's American public and those people who are um, over uh, the age of about 55, who are the only ones who really remember his presidency. Um, so I'm 65, and I was uh, in, in college during most of his presidency. I was actually an intern, a college intern in his speech writing office uh, when but, um, you know, um, anybody um, 15 years younger, they don't really remember him. So younger people, interestingly, have a, because they don't remember his presidency, they have a quite favorable impression of him and his, you know, his moral rectitude, his involvement in all the cutting edge issues uh, of our time from global health to democracy promotion, to conflict resolution uh the environment um so you know he is extremely well regarded by them and i think more broadly even people who are older um they tend to use this easy shorthand you know mediocre president great former president uh and i kind of reject that as as a uh, uh, too simplistic i think he was a much better president than people remember. He, he doesn't belong on Mount Rushmore, and he made a number of mistakes, but much, much better than people recognize. And that as a former president, while he's accomplished a lot in those areas I discussed, um, he doesn't have the power that he had um, when he was president. So to say that he um, you know, was a better former president than president, he, he actually touched and changed many more lives when he was president and as a former president he sometimes got in the way of his successors in ways that were understandably irritating to them and sort of freelance to have a chapter called freelance secretary right, of state right, right um so i think that his presidency is underrated his 
post-presidency is overrated. I think in to answer your question, I'm sorry to be long-winded, you know, my my view of the way he should be viewed is as a political and stylistic failure, but a substantive and often far-sighted success. And that journalists are trained to judge um presidents by how they do politically. And if you're not reelected, if you're crushed by Ronald Reagan, you know, the winners write the history, right? But historians are supposed to look at the actual record. And, you know, which I'm prepared to do with you as a fellow historian. And when you do that, Carter comes across much better than um, most people now who remember his presidency would assume. Absolutely, Jonathan. And and that's exactly, you know, what we seek to do on this show each week is really to understand the historical legacies and the policy effects of decisions that are made by figures like Jimmy Carter in our history and what we can learn for our democracy today. So what would be the two or three things that you would single out uh, as successes and legacies of uh, Carter's presidency that matter for our democracy today? You know, if you qualify it that way, it's a little different than thinking about his his biggest successes because I don't think the Camp David Accords have huge implications for our our democracy, um, uh, even though they're extraordinarily important. Um, I I don't think that um, the Panama Canal treaties have huge implications for our democracy, but they help contribute to the spread of democratic societies across Latin America for reasons that relate to his human rights policy, which is what I would put number one yes. in answer to your question. Um, so uh, it wasn't just that Carter you know, created an assistant secretary of state for human rights and began issuing um, uh, reports on uh, countries and their human rights records, which are a very important tool now for human rights activists around the world. It's that he set a new global standard for how governments are supposed to treat their own people. And that is the essence of democracy, is a government that doesn't repress its people. And so even though his human rights policy was hypocritical in certain respects, because it it took place amid the Cold War, so it was very um, inconsistent in its application. And you know, he praised the Shah of Iran early on in his presidency. He looked the other way, uh, you know, about Marcos's abuses. There, there are plenty of of places you could say, well, he's a hypocrite on that. But the fact that he raised the standard in the first place was extraordinarily important. And if you look at all of the nations, in, particularly in Latin America, but also in Asia, that moved from authoritarianism to democracy uh, in the 10 years after uh, Carter was president. And then you talk to the human rights activists in those countries, as I did, many of whom were in prison when Carter was president. And at least three of whom became presidents of their countries, like Vasco Havel and um, um, Kim Dae-jung in 
in South Korea, they will tell you how important that human rights policy was. And conservative Republican scholars of the Cold War will tell you how important the soft power of Carter's human rights policy was to ending or hastening the end of the Cold War. So, you know, this is a, a big thing in the world. And I think that when democracy is strengthened abroad, it's strengthened at home as well. Do, do you think that um, Carter's policies with regard to the U.S. economy uh, strengthened our democracy in certain ways? He's usually labeled as the, the man who was uh, had the misfortune of being president during a period of stagflation, continued oil crisis. Uh, but on the other hand, as I think Zachary referred to in his um, poem, Carter was someone who did speak forthrightly about the importance of economic fairness and uh, dealing with problems of inequality. Do you see a legacy there, Jonathan? Uh, actually, I, I, I don't. Um, I don't think um, that he um, was uh, much of a uh, crusader for economic justice when he was president. Um, uh, and it's not just because, um, you know, he didn't believe in the Humphrey Hawkins full employment bill, which, um, you know, was a big thing at the time. And he he was not a um, New Deal liberal. He was more of a Teddy Roosevelt progressive. Um, and um, he um, so um, and he was not um, um, particularly a, a, you know redistributionist in, in terms of his economic policy. Now. He did think that the tax code was horribly unfair and that fat cats, as he called them, you know, shouldn't be allowed to have three martini lunches and write them, write them off. Um, and he wanted to make it fair to ordinary working people. But that was one of his failures because um, this actually um, is says something about the less appealing parts of Carter. So... Instead of um, calling Russell Long, who was chairman of the uh, Senate Finance Committee, and um, a guy named Al Allman, who was the chairman of the House Ways and Means Committee, both Democrats, calling them to the White House and saying, well, like, what can we work on for a more fair tax code, as I promised during the campaign? He stayed up all night studying all the details of the tax code, and then <laughs> he just... By the way, his attention to detail was much maligned and unfairly maligned. It was hugely important in the Camp David Accords, in the Alaska Lands Bill, which doubled the size of the National Park Service, and and, and in uh, Panama Canal Treaties, normalization with China. That obsession with details that he was so criticized for was extremely helpful. But in this case, on taxes... He studied the tax code and he delivered an elaborate proposal. And, you know, Long and Ullman were offended that they weren't brought in at the beginning of the process. They gutted his bill. And what do we get? A cut in the capital gains rate in 1978. Now, you could say, well, that cut in the gap, capital gains rate, depending on how one views, you know, the growth of the American economy, that did stimulate some significant economic growth in the 1980s that Reagan got credit for. Um, but, uh, but it also was, 
you know, not particularly fair since working people don't, don't, uh, you know, get, um, uh, you know, they don't itemize. So they, they don't, they don't have capital gains. Um, and he also, he, um, he was a fiscal hawk and, you know, was always trying to balance the budget and believed erroneously that, um, deficit reduction would help reduce inflation when they really don't have anything to do with each other. We've learned through hard experience. Um, so, um, I don't think his economic policy was not only, you know, did he have bad luck um, to have double digit interest rates and inflation, which would cause for things beyond his control, but he also, his, his remedies weren't so great unless you believe as I do that at a certain point, you do have to raise interest rates to end inflation. We're, we're seeing some of that right now. Right. So he appointed Paul Volcker, and it was Volcker who ended inflation. It was, unfortunately for Carter, it was Reagan who benefited from that. So Reagan, I asked Volcker when I interviewed him, I said, you, you know, some people say you elected and reelected Ronald Reagan. And he said, I've heard that, you know, <laughs> because he jacked up interest rates to 19%, 15% the, a month before the election, before the 1980 election. How do you win an election when interest rates are 15%? And then and then his harsh medicine worked and they got low inflation and economic growth and Reagan was resoundingly reelected in 1984. So I guess I put that on the positive side of his economic uh, legacy. But I, unless you consider like lower airfares on certain routes to be helpful for uh, economic justice, and I guess... I guess you could. And that came out of Carter's airline deregulation. So there, because of Jimmy Carter, there are a lot more people who can visit relatives than could um, before Carter because they can afford to fly. Um, at the time, uh, um, he was, before airline deregulation, the cheapest ticket between New York and L.A. was, um, in today's dollars, I think, um, thirteen or fourteen hundred dollars. Wow! So wow. just a lot harder to yeah. travel. Some of the shorter routes got more more expensive. He also they they uh, they allowed for craft breweries. Uh, the breweries were operating under New Deal uh, legislation that um, basically prevented craft breweries. And so uh, um, he certainly did that for uh, anybody who likes likes their beer. Yeah, and Jonathan, I wanted to to also get into one other continuity. I really like how you you pointed out how many of the policies he pursued in the economic sphere, as often happens, right? There's a policy lag, and we don't see the effects until years right. after. Uh, another place one could point to that would re, would be with regard to the Soviet Union, uh, and this is relevant also for our conflict with Russia and Ukraine today. It was during Carter's presidency that the Soviet Union placed intermediate range missiles in Europe. And it was Carter who began the process uh, of responding to that. And it was also Carter who responded initially forcefully to the Soviet invasion of Afghanistan, most infamously pulling the United States out of the 1980 Olympics. Do you see a legacy there, uh, especially in a world today where we seem to be moving toward more conflict with Russia yet again? Yeah, very, very definitely. So it, it, and it applies in several different ways. So, you know, 
I don't believe Reagan won the Cold War, but to the extent that we intimidated um, the Soviet Union with our weaponry, it was weaponry that was developed in the Carter administration, most particularly the B-2 stealth bomber, which um, was something they couldn't match. Um, If you go back earlier, if you really want to look at continuity, Jimmy Carter was in the nuclear Navy. He was a protege of Hyman Rickover. And if you ask Colin Powell, how do we win the Cold War? His answer was two words, nuclear submarines. Because when we developed nuclear submarines and Carter worked on the prototype, um, you know, we could stay under the water and totally change the strategic balance. And the Russians tried to match us and they, they failed in part because Rickover uh, was such a fiend for safety that we didn't have accidents and the Russians did. So that was a very important factor in, in eventually ending the Cold War. Um, the SALT II Treaty that Carter negotiated wasn't ratified, but um, uh, it, both sides abided by its terms. Um, and that became the predicate for the START treaties that um, Reagan got signed. And then, you know, all the arms control that that followed from from SALT II. Um, so there was a continuum there, um, you know, that's, that started at the dawn of the Cold War. You know, every post-war president played his part. And I think Carter's part in ending the Cold War and confronting the Soviet Union was was partly through human rights uh, uh, and, and somebody like Larry Eagleburger, who was ambassador to Yugoslavia, you know, really disliked Carter. Um, but, you know, later when he was Republican Secretary of State, he and many others acknowledged how important um, human rights was to hollowing out Soviet Union. And then, you know, they did the first aid to, uh, covert aid to the Mujahideen in Afghanistan. Uh, and that, um, you know, before uh, the Russian invasion of Afghanistan, starting in 1979. And, um, you know, that eventually contributed not just to Afghanistan becoming the Soviet Vietnam and the collapse of the Soviet empire, but to 9-11. Because, you know, Osama bin Laden was part of the Mujahideen. So there's, there are these connections between these things. As far as the invasion went, that I would give Carter lower marks on when it came to the invasion of Afghanistan. Because, um, you know, I think in retrospect, they, the Russians were not really trying to... Um, uh, interrupt oil supplies. Um, Afghanistan's landlocked. The Carter Doctrine that was all about threat to Persian Gulf oil supplies was a, lit, a little bit concocted. Carter had to respond because it was an election year. And I actually think Ted Kennedy got the better of that argument that it was very different than them invading Ukraine. You know, this was, they went to um, prop up their puppet government in Kabul, the way we intervened in Vietnam to prop up, you know, our puppet government in Saigon. And so, um, you know, it was a little more comparable to Vietnam in that, in the same way that, you know, the Soviet Union shouldn't have responded uh, vigorously to our um, 
intervention in Vietnam, we probably shouldn't have responded as strongly to the Soviet invasion of Afghanistan. And the two ways we did respond were both very ineffective. So the grain embargo, which Walter Mondale pleaded with Carter not to do, was really useless. It, 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 the, the Soviets just bought from other countries, they bought grain from other countries. It pissed off the farmers, not just then, but for all the years since. You can still find farmers. Why are you a Republican? You used to be Democrats in this part of Nebraska. The Carter or grain embargo was stupid, you know? You can literally still hear that. I talked to Dan Glickman, who was Secretary of Agriculture, uh, under uh, Clinton, under Obama, and he uh, confirmed that. Um, anyway, that was counterproductive. And the Olympic boycott, which was very popular at the time, also didn't do anything. It just ticked people off and was unfair to American athletes. So I understood how they wanted to send a message to Moscow, but uh, they needed to think harder about sending a different one. Last question, Zachary. I just want to, as we conclude, take a step back uh, and to, to, to talk a little bit more about Carter the man. What do you think made him so appealing as a politician uh, in 1976? Uh, I think that there have been a lot of comparisons made these days between Carter or Carter's moment and uh, the political moment we're in, or at least the political moment we were in in 2020. What do you think made his leadership at that moment stand out? He was an outsider. He was promising to clean up Washington. You know, it had been since FDR that we had elected a governor. Um, people he was running against who were 40, 50 points ahead of him in the polls at the beginning, the senators, all better known. They stank of Washington, even though they weren't connected to Watergate. So his timing was perfect after Watergate to promise that he wouldn't lie. Uh, promise a government as good as its people. He, he ran a brilliant campaign in 76, and I don't think he would have been elected without Watergate. Um, and I think that um, the post-Watergate press made him and then unmade him. They made him because they gave him almost a free ride in that campaign, as Carter admitted to me. Um, and and they let him just coast on that Watergate theme. Um, and then once he got into office, they treated every flap as if it had a gate attached to it as a, you know, a suffix like <laughs> Lance gate, you know, it, you know, I mean, everything was a gate. They, they, they assumed the press assumed that he was, he was uh, crooked, which he was not. And so uh, as Jody Powell said, you know, not only did we not get a, uh, uh, a honeymoon, we didn't get a one-night stand with the press. <laughs> that contributed to a lot of people's, you know, um, uncomfortable feelings about him. And then he, you know, he mismanaged his relationships inside the Democratic Party, most importantly with Kennedy. And um, he didn't curry favor enough with the Washington establishment. He, he could have gotten even more done than he did. Um, he, you know, he did get more legislation through than any president since FDR except LBJ. And that record still stands. And that includes people who served eight years. His, his scoreboard is more full of achievements. Uh, you can look it up. And yep. that's really yep. counter to the conventional wisdom, but it's a fact. 
And, you know, the, the, so the consequences of his failures were not as great um, for his legislative program as people assume, but they were really hard for him personally when he ran for re-election. It didn't help that he was bad on TV, but he, he still, the, to the very end, even after he was crushed, the American people still admired him, trusted him, and saw him as a figure of integrity. And that impression has just been compounded and intensified with the passage of years. And that's why he, even if he's never, you know, in the first rank of American presidents, you know, he keeps moving up and he will be remembered as a global icon and somebody who brought honesty, decency, and most important, arguably, peace. Um, He was the first president since Thomas Jefferson and the only president under whom not a single uh, soldier died in combat on on his watch. Um, So, um, you know, the, I mean, it's, I'm, I'm climbing a steep hill as you guys (laughs) find it and trying to get people to reappraise him. And I'm not asking them to, you know, go on, put him on Mount Rushmore, but I just think that people need to take another look at him and try to get the, uh, you know, killer rabbit and collapsing in a road race and the thrashing by Ronald Reagan, you know, out of their heads and assess him uh, for his humanitarianism and his um, desire to represent the best of America. Jonathan, that's very well said, and I think you make a compelling case here, as you do in your book also, and I encourage uh, readers to read your book. Zachary, to close us out, what are your thoughts as as a young person who, I mean, as, as Jonathan said, I didn't live through uh, the Carter years, or I did, but I was too young to remember. You were not alive at all, obviously, during the Carter years. Uh, for your generation, what do you think Carter's going to be remembered for? Well, I, I think that uh, he will be remembered uh, first of all, and, and and first and foremost, as a kind man and and a good man and a decent man, and I think that 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 for those of us who have come of to our political awareness in 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 this age, in this day and age, and and in a period of great political polarization uh, and and seeming moral corruption in our politics here in the United States, I think that 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 will be much more meaningful than than. Carter probably imagined it would be when when he left the presidency in 1981. Uh, so I think that the legacy he leaves, at the very least, is is as a sort of model for the kind of people that we should elevate to 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 our to our highest offices. Yeah, yeah. I, th- I think Carter will be remembered, and Jonathan will help us remember him as as an example of how you can succeed in politics, if if only for a short time, perhaps, but you can succeed in politics through integrity, through seriousness, through competence and through goodwill, and that one does not have to always uh, be the dirtiest version of ourselves to be successful in politics. Uh, Jonathan, thank you for, for reminding us of perhaps what, what Lincoln would call the better angels of our nature, and, and Carter, despite the mixed record, uh, uh, someone who represents in some ways the better angels of our nature. Thank you for, for sharing your time with us, Jonathan, and your insights. Thanks for having me on. Zachary, thank you for your poem, as always. And thank you most of all to our loyal listeners for joining us for this week 
of This Is Democracy. This podcast is produced by the Liberal Arts ITS Development Studio and the College of Liberal Arts at the University of Texas at Austin. The music in this episode was written and recorded by Harris Codini. Stay tuned for a new episode every week. You can find This is Democracy on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Stitcher. See you next time.